Laura, what are the conversations like when you talk to people who are stressed about just being able to feed themselves or feed their children? Well, unfortunately, a lot of things that happen like this fly below the radar. Laura Riley is a reporter at The Post who covers the business of food. If you're a single parent caring for kids and maybe you have your mom living with you and you're, you know, hustling between two halftime jobs, you're probably not really paying attention to, to the news, you know. So I think that there are a lot of people who don't yet know that their next EBT card benefit is going to be dramatically slashed. More than 30 million Americans rely on a federal program that helps families buy food. It's called SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, but you might know it as food stamps. And starting this month, a lot of households that depend on it will see sharp cuts to their benefits. Well, that's because a program put in place at the height of the pandemic, which increased SNAP benefits, is ending. Now, seniors and families are facing tough decisions about how to cut their grocery bills, even as the prices for basic food items like eggs and milk are climbing at historic rates. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. It's Tuesday, March 7th. I'm your guest host, Libby Casey. Today, we look at the fallout from cutting the aid that helps Americans buy groceries and just how far-reaching those cuts may be. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which we call SNAP, and what used to be known as food stamps, is having a dramatic cut. A lot of this came about in March of 2020, in those scary first days of the pandemic. There was a huge increase uh, in SNAP allotments for recipients. So there are about 41 million people on SNAP, and pretty much everybody got a raise um, at the beginning of the pandemic. And that continued on. As people lost jobs, found jobs, and, you know, we saw incredible uh, inflation for food. So those extended benefits continued on until the omnibus was signed in December. And one of the agreements was, okay, we're going to move this money, this food assistance money around, and we're going to take SNAP money and put it back to pre-pandemic levels. And we're going to take that some of that windfall from that, and we're going to make summer meals permanent for low-income kids. So it was kind of a, a really, for people who are in the kind of food insecurity space, it was a really mixed message kind of, you know, Sophie's Choice moment for people where they thought, you know, okay, it's great. We've always had, we've known that there's this disconnect for low-income kids in the summer. They don't access meals that they're entitled to. And so this was a way of making sure kids in the summer get fed. But pretty much everybody who's on SNAP pays the price. So the cut that's coming in this boost to food stamp or SNAP funding, what does it actually mean for people's everyday and every week experience? What is it going to mean to people who rely on that to go shopping? So it will mean a cut of about $182 on average per household. So let's call it about 100 bucks a person uh, a month. So $100 is about a week's worth of meals, depending on whose math you're using. So let's just say all of the people who are receiving this benefit are going to be about a week shy of meals. So what does that translate to in terms of how much a family could spend on a meal? 
This will entitle people to less than $6 a meal. So one thing we should also bring up is that in 2021, the end of 2021, the Biden administration did revise the kind of math that's used to to determine benefits. So this thing called the Thrifty Food Plan hadn't been really re-examined since the 1970s. And it reflected cooking in a way that most of us don't do anymore. So it was kind of a lot of like, well, you know, rice and beans and stew meat. So there was an update to the Thrifty Food Plan at the end of 2021 that increased those SNAP benefits an average of $26 per person per month. But the end of these enhanced benefits from the pandemic far outstrip that little bump. So yes, it's not exactly going back to pre-pandemic numbers, Um, but it will be a very big hit, especially for households, single-person households, and especially for the elderly. Frequently what happens is the elderly are in some ways penalized for having accumulated some wealth in the course of their lives. Um, And so they may be getting you know, $30 a month for their their food assistance uh, benefit. Let's talk about how much food actually costs. You know, as I was thinking about your reporting and this story, I went by my local corner store just to check out what the latest costs were of basic groceries. And you mentioned eggs. The eggs there, the cheapest ones were $4. A gallon of milk was $5. A simple loaf of whole wheat bread cost $5. And I found a two-pack of baby food cost two fifty. What does that mean in people's real lives? Well, I, I think that that is a significant challenge, that the math that's been used to determine how much a meal costs has not kept up with in A, inflation, or B, how we eat. A lot of us, I mean, I, I know for myself, uh, you know, on a Tuesday night, there are times where I'm like, I do not have the bandwidth for anything complicated. So I'm going to buy a roast chicken. I'm going to buy a bag salad. I'm going to buy a loaf of bread. Boom, dinner. That is more expensive than kind of stewing dried beans for four hours. A lot of us eat prepared food a lot of the time. And the irony of, of Snap is that on Snap, you can buy soda and chips and, you know, things that are absolutely not good for us. But you can't buy prepared lasagna from or a roast chicken from the that part of the grocery store. So there are some limits around what you can buy. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, the food that we like to eat, the food that we routinely feed our families has gotten a lot more expensive. You talk to people who are now rethinking their grocery shopping and budgets because of this. So what did they tell you about how they're doing it? Well, I I think that when a lot of us are trying to kind of tighten things up a little bit, we lean heavier on pasta. We lean heavier on things that are calorically dense uh, and maybe shelf-stable and, you know, not likely to go bad. I mean, the worst-case scenario is you're buying a lot of fresh fruit and veg um, that's sitting there in your crisper, you know, like a ticking time bomb. And then, you know, if you don't use it, you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm wasting even more money here. So people turn to, you know, the kind of hamburger helper, canned meat. Unfortunately, with these kind of cuts, it often means people turn more towards the consumption of hyper-processed foods, uh, foods that we know inevitably cost the taxpayer more in terms of the healthcare costs uh, associated with those people. So people who are dual enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid, we know we're going to see 
a spike in the number of people coming into the ER with low blood glucose incidence, or, you know, we're going to see a spike in lifestyle-related diseases. That's just what happens when people turn to food that is cheaper and more calorically dense and less good for us. So the program expanded as the pandemic started, and then it was allowed to continue as we saw inflation happen. And we've seen the economy, uh, you know, be roiling in terms of what people are actually facing when they go out and buy things. But some Republican-led states have already halted these extra benefits. So how did those states make the decision, and how has that gone? Yeah, some of them as early as the end of 2021. You know, by and large, a lot of red states kind of decided— If we cannot find enough workers to fulfill these jobs, one way to do that is to take things away, take away the child tax credit and the enhanced unemployment and all of these things that have enabled people to sit at home and not get back to work. So I think that that was the rationale for some of the early terminations of these enhanced benefits. So what happened March 1 uh, was really for 32 states and a few territories. The rest had already uh, curtailed that enhanced benefit. So, Laura, you said this cut is coming because of the omnibus spending bill, which was this huge spending bill, nearly $2 trillion that Congress passed in December. It includes a ton of programs. So why was this cut? Well, you know, there was always this idea that these enhanced benefits were temporary. There was always this sense that there would be a return to pre-pandemic benefits. Um, So during the the pandemic, everybody got brought up to the 100%, the maximum level. And those, the very poor people who were already at maximum got a bump as well. So it really was kind of a remarkable moment for poverty and food insecurity in the U.S. I mean, by kind of anyone's metrics, it really made a difference, um, this, this kind of pandemic social safety net. So a lot of the GOP senators uh, that were really pushing for the end of these enhanced SNAP benefits said, this will get more people to go back to work, you know, that we have very low unemployment, we have lots of people, lots of jobs open, and we are not incentivizing people, people appropriately to get back to work. You know, there have always been these GOP proposals to circumscribe what the benefits are or who gets them. I mean, earlier this year, the Iowa GOP proposed that there would be a ban on SNAP benefit use for fresh meat, sliced cheese, white bread, you know, et cetera, just to kind of make it more punitive. But the interesting thing about SNAP benefits is the far right and the far left actually agree on one thing that you shouldn't, you know, on the right, there's this kind of nanny state, you know, you can't tell people that they can't get soda or they can't get chips with their benefits. And then on the far left, you have people saying, you know, there's food sovereignty is a, is a point of dignity. And, you know, low income folks should be able to get a treat if they want a treat or give their kids something, you know, special. And we should not circumscribe precisely what their benefits allow them to buy. So there has been this interesting antipathy for really putting parameters around the foods that can be purchased with SNAP with an eye towards more healthful foods. After the break, we talk about all the ways local governments and food banks are bracing for the cuts to SNAP. We'll be right back.
In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. So this end of the enhanced benefits is coming at a time when food prices have been rising and money is not going as far as it did even a year or two ago at the grocery store. I can imagine this could make the level of hunger that people are experiencing even worse. Are states or the federal government finding ways to fill in the gaps? Yes. So there have been benefits, like the USDA has given money to school, school districts and to food banks. There are some programs that essentially give commodity foods to uh, food banks. And they've also been given money and in infrastructure. One thing we saw during the pandemic is that a lot of the food banks um, didn't have the cold storage for a lot of food. So we had the, the Farmers to Families Food Box Program, which brought fully you know, filled boxes to these food banks that could just be like loaded into people's trunks. And one problem with them is that a lot of the food banks didn't have the refrigerator or freezer space for this influx of foods. Um, so there have been some federal monies that have been allocated to upgrade some of the big food banks' um, facilities, you know, their refrigeration system or their reefer trucks, you know, that take things from between the main food bank and say the, the food pantries or soup kitchens that, that they, they service. Laura, how are food banks coping with just this influx of people that they've been helping? Um, how are other nonprofits helping to fight hunger? Well, you know, it's been an interesting time for the food banks. At the beginning of the pandemic, they had a dramatic drop in volunteerism, because a lot of people who volunteer at food banks are retirees and they didn't want to get COVID. So there was a huge drop for, you know, two years, two plus years uh, in volunteerism. Because we had all those supply chain disruptions in grocery stores, there was a real big drop in what grocery stores were donating because they were scrambling to get stuff on the shelves. So they didn't, were not in a position to spend a lot of time shipping their surplus to, to area food banks. A lot of food banks have really hollowed out their savings to accommodate the increase in need. At the peak of the pandemic, a lot of food banks saw at least double the pre-pandemic need, just in terms of the number of people walking up to the door saying, I need, I need help. And that has not dissipated. Obviously, it's not at peak, but it has not gone back to pre-pandemic levels. And they still have not had a lot of those connections to grocery stores and and kind of, you know, the surplus food, that's still diminished. So it's it's kind of a recipe for disaster for a lot of them. And, you know, they do what they can do, but they're anticipating that this will put another significant dent in their ability to, to feed everybody who shows up. Because as these enhanced benefits end, people have to find some place, if they can, to, to get more food, and you expect them to go to those food banks and nonprofits that can provide them. Yes, I think a lot of low-income Americans, uh, you know, people who are on SNAP did avail themselves of food banks during the pandemic and are aware that if there's a shortfall, you know, the last week of the month, if they just don't have enough to make ends meet, that that is an avenue to, to, to pursue. Given all of this, what is the state of hunger in the United States right now? 
it's a little bit hard to know, but there was a significant diminution in food insecurity in the past three years. You know, we still have 41 million people enrolled in SNAP and about six and a half million enrolled in WIC. And some of those are the same, you know, there's overlap there. But it's hard to know exactly. And, you know, the unfortunate thing is that we used to have this idea that people who were food insecure lacked calories. And what we're really realizing is that we need to reshuffle our thinking on that. And it's that they lack nutrition. So often it's the low income, the people who are food insecure, who also have obesity and fatty liver disease and all of these other kind of, you know, lifestyle-related diseases. There's more and more connection between the consumption of hyper-processed, shelf-stable, engineered food. The connection between that and obesity is, is so clear. Um, so it's, it's a... Hunger looks different than it used to um, in this country. Laura, thanks so much for talking to us. Well, thanks so much, Libby. Laura Riley covers the business of food for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Arjun Singh with help from Sabi Robinson. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. If you haven't yet subscribed to our morning news podcast called The Seven, take a few seconds and do that right now. Just look for The Seven wherever you're listening. My colleague Jeff Pierre hosts the show, and he runs down the day's seven top stories in less than seven minutes. It's all you need to get your weekday started. I'm Libby Casey. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.